Good morning. Uh, first of all, I agree with Deanna. Um, that one song especially was great, and all of them I love. Uh, we often, as worship leaders, try to get songs that line up with the message is going to be, and I just, today was one of those days where it just feels like it worked perfectly. And so thank you, Barb, and thank you to the Holy Spirit for lining that up. Uh, let's open in prayer. Dear God, thank you for church, for this uh, time we can come together and uh, worship you through singing, through giving, through uh, hearing your word, um, doing it all together in community. Thank you for that. And thank you that it isn't just this Sunday morning, that we can go throughout the week worshiping you together. I pray that that would be reality, that we would do that. I pray this morning as I speak that uh, words that I say would be from you, that we would find truth um, and find ways to live that out in our day-to-day lives. Thank you. Amen. Two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Jesse opened up this series uh, from Galatians. He highlighted Paul's passion for what is going on in the church of Galatia and how the gospel is being distorted by the teachings of other men. The core message of salvation has been twisted. And because of that, Paul writes with urgency and and passion. Then last week in the second sermon, Pastor Jesse looked at chapter 2 and how Paul's writing is very autobiographical, meaning about himself. Much of the first two chapters, Paul writes about himself. He writes about how God called him to be an apostle. He writes about how other apostles accepted him and sent him out. Uh, And then uh, uh, writes about a disagreement between himself and Peter. And now as we start chapter 3, we see a shift in Paul's writing, from I to you. He begins the chapter by saying, you. He comes back to the main purpose of him writing to the Galatians, as he briefly addressed in chapter 1. He actually comes back to the, the main point pretty abruptly. He says, you foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Very kind way to address someone you're talking to. And in case it wasn't enough, he calls them foolish again in in verse 3. But he gets back to the main point of the letter, and that is that true freedom comes through the true gospel, by believing and by faith, not by the distorted one they've been taught, which teaches of the need for them to do things to gain salvation and attain sanctification, but rather he calls them back to the true gospel message that Jesus' payment for sins is enough for all of us, and that they have freedom through Jesus alone by believing in him, by faith in him. Uh, By a show of hands, who knows who Cassius Clay is? Anybody know who that is? Some of you. Uh, By a show of hands, who knows who Muhammad Ali is or was? A lot more of you. Well, everybody that raised your hand for the second question and not the first, you're wrong. You do know who both of them are because they are the same person. Cassius Clay was Muhammad Ali. In 1964, a young Cassius Clay joined the Islamic belief and changed his name to what many of us know as the great boxer Muhammad Ali. It's a little sports history lesson for you. He lived a very interesting life, uh, and it's an intriguing story to follow if you ever want to. One quote, uh, he was once asked in an interview what his Islamic faith meant to him. He said, one day we're all going to die, and God's going to judge us, our good and bad deeds. If the bad outweighs the good, you go to hell. If the good outweighs the bad, you go to heaven. Pretty simple. Throughout my time at YWAM, uh, back in 2017-18, we spent many hours doing street evangelism and other types of connecting with people uh, to share Jesus with them. 
We did this both in Pittsburgh, where our main base was, and then also in Ecuador and Colombia, where we spent our outreach phase. We would walk around and talk to people at malls, at parks, going door to door from one house to the next, or just on the streets. Wherever we went, our goal was to tell people about Jesus and salvation. And it always amazed me at the number of people who would say the same thing that Muhammad Ali said. They felt saved because they were good people. Because they did good. They did more good than bad. And I constantly wanted to be as bold as as Paul and say, Are you foolish? I never did. Good thing. But who bewitched you? Who made you think that this way of thinking was true? You and I, we cannot do this ourselves. In many cases, the people I talked to didn't know the true gospel, and so it is, it's good that I didn't do what Paul did. But I had the chance to then tell them about the true gospel and constantly, uh, continually emphasize the fact that we cannot do anything to attain salvation. And that's what Paul reminds the Galatians of here. In verse 2, he says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Now, this isn't quite true. In these first five verses alone, we read six questions that Paul has. He says, who bewitched you? Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing? Are you foolish? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? All six of these are somewhat rhetorical questions. And the overlying theme throughout these questions is, have any of these things happened to you because of your human effort to keep the Jewish law? The main question we find is in verse 5. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? And the question doesn't really need an answer. They know it. Of course it's not because of the law. In verse 1, Paul says, who bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Although for many of the people I talked to on my YOM outreaches, they didn't know the true gospel. That's not the case here. My Bible says the beginning of chapter 3 is about the Galatians' experience of the gospel. It's not new for them. Paul reminds them, you know the truth. You know Christ was crucified. Paul may simply mean he described the crucifixion for them graphically. That's what some scholars would say. Some would suggest he may have used a visual aid. Likely, though, at that time, they knew what crucifixion was. It wasn't an uncommon thing. Paul's not trying to say they were physically present at the time, but rather that he knows, that they know that Christ was crucified. But yet that's not how they're living. They aren't living in the truth that Christ's crucifixion was enough for them. These Judaizers, Judaizers, the Jewish teachers who are saying Christ alone is not enough, you must be circumcised, you must not eat these foods, you must do this, you must do that, you must not do that. These men are persuading the church to believe these things. And Paul's getting really angry about it. I know I'm jumping ahead a little, but it kind of makes me laugh a little bit how annoyed Paul is at this whole situation. He says in chapter 5, verse 12, As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Pretty uh, strong word. Sorry, Jesse, if I stole your main verse for a couple weeks from now. But it's clear that that Paul hates the gospel getting twisted. A slide that Jesse has now referenced a few times is this. Salvation equals Jesus plus nothing. It's a complete equation with no room for plus this and plus that. In John 19 verse 30, 
when Jesus is hanging on the cross, we hear him say, it is finished. Always remember that. Those are powerful words. Finished, complete, done. Believing in Jesus and his finished work on the cross is not just a one-time belief, though. Rather, as J.D. Greer says, the first time we believe these words, we are released from the penalty of sin. As we continue to believe these words, we are released from the power of sin. We need to believe this over and over again. By believing it is finished, we have power to continue. And by understanding that Christ's work is finished, we recognize, we can recognize, that we don't actually need to add anything. If we truly believe the words it is finished by Jesus, spoken by Jesus on the cross, we can't add anything. When I was in high school, I once had a grammar test, and uh, me no grammar good. When I got the marks back, I went, I wish this wasn't finished. I wish I could go back and add some things and make it better. But that's not the reality. Once something is finished, you can't add to it. And quite opposite of my grammar test, when Jesus said it is finished, it was finished perfectly. Even if we wanted to add something, we couldn't add anything to make it better. Salvation equals Jesus plus nothing. It's a perfect equation. But the people in Galatia were having a hard time understanding that. If we jump ahead to verse 10, we read that all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. What this means is that anyone who is living under the law and does not perfectly fulfill all of the law is then under a curse. That means everyone. No one can live under the law and perfectly fulfill all of the law. For we are all sinners and we all mess up. The Old Testament is filled with stories of the Israelite people under the law, living under the law, making a mistake, making a sacrifice, being made right again, making a mistake, making a sacrifice, being made right again. Over and over it happens. They continually mess up, make a sacrifice, mess up, make a sacrifice. One of the most well-known memory verses throughout Awana and Sunday school, I think, is Romans 3.23. And I want to ask if any kid here is brave enough to say that. Does anybody know Romans 3.23? When I was a kid, that was a very common memory verse. Anybody here? We'll open it up to not just kids. Anybody know Romans 3.23? Yes, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus shows up and becomes the sacrifice to free all of us. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul says in in verse 13 here in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who who is hung on a tree. Another well-known memory verse is uh, three chapters later in Romans, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. The curse is death. But in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. For us. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's this trade that is made. Imagine Kevin Sheveldayoff. He's the GM for the Jets. Imagine him making a trade where, where we, we, the Jets, we send some moose player you've never heard of before, He's never going to make it to the NHL. We send him to Edmonton, and we get Connor McDavid. First off, I think there's going to be no more issues for uh, attendance at the Jets games. 
Secondly, I think he would win GM of the year before the season was even done. It would be right away. It's just such a far-fetched idea. No one would ever think of doing that. But here there's this trade that is made. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. We give Jesus our worst, our old, dirty, torn-to-pieces rags, and he gives us the most expensive suit in the world, which apparently is $890,000. I don't know if that's true, but it's on the internet, so I believe it. (laughs) Either way, true or not, we give him our rags, our worst, and he gives us his best. Our sin for his righteousness. It doesn't make sense. Paul tells them, Christ took on the curse for you and has now offered you freedom from that curse by simply believing in him. If you now go and try to add things to Jesus' death because you don't think it's enough, you're completely disgracing and disrespecting the death of Jesus. Luther says that when we look upon the cross and see Jesus, we should see sin, death, the wrath of God, hell, the devil, and all evils vanquished and mortified by him. It's all by him. As soon as we start to add our own human efforts into the equation, we diminish the incredible sacrifice and gift that comes only from Jesus and the sacrifice he made. You see, if keeping the law could give us new life, Jesus' death would have been for nothing. This is the true gospel, and, and Paul is doing his best to convince the Galatians Forget about being circumcised. Forget about doing this and doing that, only eating this, not eating that. Have faith in Jesus. Anything else you try to add to it disgraces the death of Jesus. In the same interview from Muhammad Ali that I read from before, he says, rivers, ponds, lakes, and streams, they all have different names, but they all contain water, just as religions do, they all contain truth. Now what I would say is true about this quote is not that all religions contain truth, but rather that the same thing is true about all religions, and that is that all religions in some way contain human effort to attain their goal. All religions have goals. For Buddhists, it's nirvana. For Hindus, it's called moksha. For Muslims, it's aiming to live a life of submission to Allah. I know there's way more to these religions, but that's the main goal in all of these, in all of these religions. The way to attain that goal is by following rules and laws. However, Jesus came not to start another religion, but rather to get rid of all religion. I read a quote that says, Religion is man reaching for God. Christianity is God reaching for man. You see the difference? Religion is man reaching for God. It's based on my effort. How high can I reach? How strong can I pull? It's all about my effort. Christianity is is different. Christianity is God reaching for man. Here I am on earth, a sinner, cursed, deserving of death, and God is reaching for me. All I need to do is believe by faith. This is what Paul is saying. Don't you get it? You cannot attain the goal by following the rules and the laws. It's what the Judaizers were pushing. Both Jewish and Gentile Christians were being lured away from the belief that Jesus was enough. They're being told they had to do more. They had to do this. They had to do that. And Paul tells them, following the law is not how you receive the salvation or the spirit. Following the law will not help you grow in the spirit either. 
Following the rules and the law is religion, and Christ came to do away with religion. The only way is through Jesus Christ, through the spirit that is given to you through, the, through your faith. Different than all other religions, the Christian does not need to do anything. They only need to believe the crucified, in the crucified Jesus. Jesus came to get rid of religion and bring salvation through faith. Jesus, through grace, is reaching out to man and offering salvation. Believe. In verse 3, Paul says, After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? If at first you initially receive the Spirit by believing, which is what he says there, after beginning with the Spirit, why would you now think that growth in the Spirit would be attained in any other way? That's the, your goal that Paul is talking about. It's referencing sanctification, which is trying to grow and become more like Jesus. In a sermon on this passage, J.D. Greer says, Our salvation had to be more than simply having our sin debt removed. That's because our sin had done more than leave us guilty before God. It had also left us utterly unable to live the Christian life. We need not only to be given a clean record, we need to be released from sin's power. J.D. says, many of us have yet to grasp this. We understand Christ alone as our forgiveness provider. We get that only Christ can save us. But many of us don't get that Christ alone is also our righteousness producer. You believe salvation is by faith alone, but sanctification, growth in Christ, is all up to you. And that's not the case. The way we grow in our Christian life needs to be the same way in which we began in the Christian life, by faith in Christ. Originally, we are justified through faith, through believing. So also we're sanctified through faith, through believing. None of this is based on our own effort in following the law. And now you may be sitting there thinking, okay, this is all fine and dandy, but how does this apply to me? I'm not that interested in getting circumcised to fill the Jewish law, which I know because since Jesse asked you to, or told you to come talk to me about circumcision, not many of you have, which I'm okay with. But the Galatians' error was that after they began believing through faith in the gospel, they thought that they would be perfected by themselves, by the power of their flesh. By observing and obeying certain laws, they thought they could improve themselves. Now, like I said, those aren't the things pulling at us. But we have different things that, that can become like the law to us. Things like ceremonies, sacraments, baptism. We can think of salvation as, and growth as faith in Jesus plus these things. Or things like what you look like or act like or talk like. We can form this narrow view of what a Christian should be like. What they should believe, what they should say, how they should look, how they should act. This too isn't to be added to faith. Maybe we have, uh, say you must have a specific political view or a certain stance on a social, social justice issue. None of these things, no matter how good or important they are on their own, none of these things are part of the equation. Salvation equals Jesus plus nothing. We cannot and will not grow through the law. Paul tells us the essence of salvation is you in Christ and Christ in you. Me being in Christ, I find his righteousness applied to my life. And Christ in me, I find his resurrection power becomes the source of my life. Many times throughout these verses, Paul references the Old Testament, and specifically Abraham. I think the reason he does this is due to Abraham's influence both on the Judaizers and 
upon the Galatian community. Abraham was a forefather of both Jews and Christians. They both knew who Abraham was. They knew the life he lived, the stories about him, the promises that God made to him. They knew all these things. So when Paul uses Abraham as an example of a man justified by faith, he's telling the Judaizers, even your father, your forefather of your religion, was saved by faith, not the law. Verse 6 says, Consider Abraham. He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, we read of God's promise to Abram at the time. We read uh, Genesis 15 verse 6. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. What is interesting and I think would have been a significant uh, hit or blow to the Judaizers' way of thinking and teaching is that two chapters after this is when circumcision is introduced. And 430 years after this is when the law is introduced. Meaning before Abraham ever followed the law, before he ever did those things, he was considered righteous. And it's only because he believed. He had faith. It had nothing to do with the law. The law wasn't even around yet. Abram believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Another amazing thing about righteousness coming through faith, being offered through faith, is that it's offered to everyone. It's not only the people in the bloodline of Abram. It's not only people of a certain culture that can be saved. Salvation is an open offer to everyone. Anyone can have faith. There are no limitations. Galatians 3, verse 8 and 9 say, The scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Later in verse 28, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There are no dividing lines. You want to believe in Jesus? You can. We all, by faith, can be counted as righteous. Going back to Muhammad Ali's quote once again, he did get one thing right. One day we will all stand before God and be judged. The only thing is, we don't need to hope that our good deeds outweigh the bad. That would be disgracing the death of Jesus. We don't need to hope that we have followed our version of the law well enough. Have confidence in the finished work of Jesus. Believe his last words on the cross as he was hanging there. It is finished. There's nothing we can add. We are freed from religion. And lastly, this is for all of us. No one is excluded from the invitation to believe the gospel. Verse 11 says, and I'll end with this, the righteous will live by faith. Amen.